Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Palmer Strand, a law professor, conflict resolution expert, and catalyst for civic competence and engagement. Palmer Joy Strand is Professor of Law and Director of the 2040 Initiative at Creighton University. The 2040 Initiative facilitates exploration of and conversation about the ways in which changing demographics are affecting current law and politics. Before joining Creighton, Palmer taught at Georgetown University Law Center and the University of Maryland School of Law. She has combined her academic work with community engagement. Palmer was co-founder and principal of the Arlington Forum a civic organizing initiative based in Arlington, Virginia, and co-founded Challenging Racism Through Stories and Conversation, also based in Arlington. She is currently co-founder and research director of Civity, a national nonprofit that supports individuals and communities in building authentic relationships across social differences. Palmer, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Civity. Uh, tell us what is Civity? So Civity is a culture of um, people deliberate, deliberately engaging with other people with respect and empathy for people who are different. And um, I was I was thinking a little bit about um, kind of the, you know, it's a little daunting to, to kind of put together everything that you've done. But I think Civity in a lot of ways really grew out of the challenging racism work. And so... Um, I, let me kind of flip back to the challenging racism work for for a minute. I, um, I was a parent in the Arlington Public Schools, and I um, I'm white, and my um, my husband is African American, and I have three biracial kids, and. In Arlington, this is in the mid-90s, there were a lot of issues having to do with, you know, quote-unquote diversity, but also just kids of color not doing as well academically as white kids. And one of the things that we realized, long story short, is that people really couldn't even talk about these issues. And um, so a group of us, both working with teachers and then working with people in the community, um, developed a kind of a curriculum for people to sit down and have conversations um, across race and about race and about racism and about racism in schools and about the history of race in our country. And this is something that particularly a lot of white people in this country haven't ever really had to deal with or wanted to deal with. And, um, and, and that, that process of talking across difference, in that case race, really was profound for me in terms of the power of stories, of personal stories. I know, Stuart, you're really big into stories, but the power of stories to um, both show who you are and um, give you a window into somebody who's really quite different in this, you know, in this case, race. But then that applies to all other kinds of differences, too. And that's really uh, where civity came from, is that, you know, race is obviously a huge difference and divider in our society, but gender, religion, 
immigration status, sexual orientation, politics. I mean, the list goes on. And um, and people are scared to talk to people who are different by and large. Um, and civity is about not just saying, you know, it's possible for us to have respect and empathy for people who are different, but it's very nuts and bolts. You know, here here are ways to have conversations. Here are ways to be open to. Here are ways to listen to um, people who are different. And um, and that's where civity came from. And that's what it is. You mentioned that initiative, Challenging Racism Through Stories and Conversation. And it sounds as if that was a building block, uh, a catalyst, as it were, for some further community work that has come later, such as civity. So why don't we... Well, let me interrupt you, though. So the challenging racism work is still going on. So it's a... You mean racism hasn't finished yet? (laughs) No, racism hasn't finished. And and the organization in Arlington is still... I mean, it's growing. They are now training trainers and working with the Arlington Public Schools, but also now working with other community organizations like churches and other faith communities. And some... so, So that you know, that focus on racism is still, you know, still very much. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of work here in Omaha that's being done, not specifically by challenging racism, but, um, you know, there are lots and lots of people doing those kinds of conversations here as well. You saw a need for that particular program around racism because of your personal circumstances and the environment within which you were living. I think it might help just to use that as an example of what might happen if someone wanted to talk across their differences. So if I was attending a program, what would I expect when I sort of go along to participate? So in the I'll, I'll, so in the challenging racism, there's a group of maybe 16 people um, who are mostly parents, but not all parents of kids in the public schools. But again, that that's gotten more uh, it's, it's gotten broader as the as the program has evolved. Um, there will be white parents. There will be um, usually black parents and Hispanic parents and Asian parents. Uh, sometimes. Um, that's usually the the kind of the the group and you will be invited to primarily to listen to start by listening um to reflect yourself you know who, who am i what's my racial identity what's what does that mean for my my life what has that meant for my life and there are some very structured um, opportunities to hear from uh, other people telling their stories um, reading some materials uh, we, we do fiction um, as well as nonfiction because fiction is a window into people's lives uh, and souls and then people tell their own stories um, in, a, in a very, again, a very structured way. Uh, and then there's work on difficult conversations um, because a lot of times conversations about race are difficult. And how do you hang in there? How do you work through the difficulty? What are some strategies for, um, for engaging in conversations that really most of us aren't, <laughs> aren't taught a lot about how to how to engage in when we're you know when we're in school when we're in our communities um this seems to be a really really important feature here, mm-hmm. which, which is that not only is the subject matter 
difficult, but our competence to engage in these kinds of difficult conversations also potentially is a barrier to this engagement too. Do you tackle those two things discreetly or are they wrapped up uh, together in, in this program? So I think what you're saying is that the difficulty, there's a substantive difficulty because there's so much history, there's so many political issues. There's so much, you know, I mean, our, our world is shaped by race. I mean, just you look at Omaha and, you know, where do people live? It's shaped by race. But it's difficult in large part because we are, um, you know, our, because our lives are so separate a lot of times, and I think for other reasons, um, we're kind of conditioned to not talk about race. And I think this, again, I think this is particularly true of white people. Um, you know, white parents often don't talk to their kids about race. You know, they live in fairly insulated um, environments. I've, I've done some work on housing in Omaha and white people in Omaha are much more insulated racially than either black people or Latino people. So if you have white people who don't really need to talk about race and they raise kids who get the message that when you say, ask a question about race, then, you know, mom or dad feels really uncomfortable. You know, you get the cue as a kid. It's like, oh, I'm not going to go there uh, or I shouldn't go there. And so, you know, we raise, we pass along this discomfort of having these conversations down to our, to our kids. And, and that's intra-race. And then, you know, across race, it's like, well, you know, if you're a white person, you know, am I going to say something that's harmful? Am I going to say something that, you know, I'm going to put my foot in my mouth? Uh, I, I, and if I'm a white person, I really don't have to take that risk. Um, and so we don't. Um, and I think that, you know, with people of color, people of color are often, I think, worried about raising these issues because they've gotten zapped. And, you know, who wants to get zapped? So so there's a lot of... There's a lot of um, really good reasons why people uh, kind of shrink back from having these conversations. And, and actually, one of the things about, about, you know, kind of signing up for a program like Challenging Racism is that you kind of, it's like, okay, phew, you know, somebody else is going to take me down this road and hold my hand and, and, and nudge me to take the, to take those risks that I know I'm going to have to take. And, um, you know, I've found, I, I teach conversations in my classes and, you know, I'll say to my students, I'll give them an assignment where they have to go talk to somebody who's different or, you know, engage in a conversation. And they're like, oh, you know, I don't know. And then you say, well, just say that it's an assignment. And even that gives people permission to do something that they um, might not otherwise take the step to do. There's nothing like having a clipboard in hand that, that makes you feel empowered somehow. <laughs> that's right. Well, you know, my teacher made me do it. And, and it, you know, you'd think, oh, that's kind of corny, but it makes a difference. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break.
I'm Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is Palmer Strand. So that particular program, but then also Civity, which in some ways isn't necessarily a, an endeavor that has specifically grown from, from that one, but it's clearly part of a similar philosophy, which is bridging divides, speaking across sort of chasms that divide us, uh, connecting uh, differences. In some way, I just want to ask, why are these endeavors necessary? So when I lived in Arlington, uh, At the same time as I was doing the work with the schools, I was doing some work with the county government and uh, I did some, uh, I did a little project on civic engagement in Arlington. And um, what I, what I found, what we found, I was working with a partner at the time. I'm a lawyer. I'm trained in law. You know, I was thinking, oh, it's going to be about, you know, going to meetings and votes and it wasn't about that at all. The the way that people felt about how their government worked, the way people felt about the issues in the county, the way people felt about their communities was all about relationships. It was all about relationships. Even when they their perceptions of the efficiency of the government or the effectiveness of the government had to do with whether the person, when I went to pay my personal property taxes at the window, was courteous and helpful and uh, and effective, or snappish and you know not very um, not very helpful. It was all about the interactions and. It just made me realize that so much of the way things work, I mean, we have a structure of laws, but so much of the way things work is just happens in the spaces within those, you know, it's how are people actually working with other. And I work with a partner, my, my co-founder of Civity, Malka Coppell who lives out in San Francisco. She's been a civic engagement facilitator for a long time. And uh, what really drew her to this is she said, you know, I've been working with groups on public issues for decades. And we, she said, I knew that we we wouldn't really get anywhere until people had enough of a relationship that they could actually trust each other enough to work together. But we never named that. We never said, let's build the relationships across these differences. And that will make it possible for us to deal with the issues that we need to deal with. It always happened as part of and kind of incidental to the process. And, you know, those two experiences led the two of us to sort of say, maybe we should, maybe we should focus on the relationships. Maybe we should name the relationships as something that's important. And particularly this idea of relationships across difference because communities are about people who are different, you know, and to kind of pull that out, to highlight it and to really think, well, how can you build relationships? And it turns out that you can build relationships with people who are different really quite easily. And Stuart, you, you, you've done a lot of work where you talk to people, you hear people's stories, you tell your own story. Stories are an amazing way to build a, I think of it, we, we talk about it in terms of my mother was a knitter and, you know, there are, there's ply in terms of yarn. And, you know, when you have a close relationship or a close friendship, I think of it as, you know, many, many little threads that pull you together and hold you together. But 
when you're just talking to somebody who's in your community, it doesn't have to be a, a lot of plies. It can just be a, a thin, a thin single ply that connects you person to person, which can be a story, can be listening to a story. And you see that person as a member of your community, as a human being, as a fellow member of your community. And that is powerful. It seems interesting to me that in some ways we and others perhaps like us are looking at larger, broader, or maybe more specific outcomes around uh, civic engagement of some form or uh, involvement in local political action or whatever that outcome happens to be. And you mentioned that before you can get to those outcomes, you need to be attentive to this named endeavor, this practice, this behavior, which is the building of authentic relationships. Right. And in some ways, I, I wonder if this these really are in the wrong order or if, in fact, the truth is that the best outcome is simply to endeavor towards authentic relationships and other elements of our lived experience will find their own way because we've built those authentic relationships. So that the solutions to the issues that we face will emerge because we have the relationships that allow us to um, communicate, that allow us to um, get information about what people need. Um, yeah. I can go with that. It's easier to disagree with someone if at the same time you also know that you simultaneously respect them and trust them and therefore ascribe to whatever it is that you disagree with a lack of malice. Mm -hmm. And you are inclined more to understand that perhaps there's just different perspectives that you are willing to explore as opposed to immediately categorizing this someone as other or, or, or different in a malevolent sort of way. Well, I think the other thing that, that happens is that you, when you move to the kind of relationship story level, you, you're really not operating. I mean, a lot of people say like with civity, well, you know, what if, if it's like people I disagree with? Well, the point isn't to agree. This is not a head operation. This is about kind of walking around the world saying these are other human beings I'm interacting with. And so it's kind of a heart, it's a heart connection. I guess there are, you know, I'm sure there are people who are, um, I mean, I don't want to get into the sort of, you know, are people potentially intrinsically bad people or evil people, but most people aren't. Most people are um, living their lives and they have their life experiences that lead them to where they are. And I may disagree with it fundamentally at a head level, but even somebody who I disagree with fundamentally, uh, there's often a human experience there that I can identify with at some, at some level. How have your own human experiences informed this, either your motivations to do this work and the nature of the work itself? I think I'm a listener by, um, by disposition. I mean, I do like to talk, but um, I think I am a listener by disposition. And talking is the currency in our society rather than listening. And Civity and challenging racism are a lot about listening. And 
um, I, I had a student, the very first time I started teaching this, and when I was at Georgetown, I had a student in my very first class who, you know, I, I, as I, as I said before, I sent them out, you know, go do this on your own. Oh, this is going to be weird. People are going to think I'm strange. And she wrote in her paper, she wrote, I was really surprised. She said, people are hungry to be heard. And I just have carried that with me ever since. People are hungry to be heard. And I think that people have amazing and powerful stories to tell that nobody listens to. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. You've been looking at me like I'm something you won't try. Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is Palmer Strand. It's hard to feel alone. It's hard to feel lonely. Yeah. And, and I think there have been some, I don't know if this is increasing or not, but there have been some interesting um, academic studies around an epidemic of loneliness. And mm-hmm. I think that speaks to that issue that we feel alienated and segregated away from our fellow humans and we don't feel heard. And, and I think that we're, a lot of times we're socialized when we don't feel heard to talk more. And yet it's, um, I'm just always amazed at how, um, how much of themselves people share um, if you really genuinely listen um, and I, I, you know, I tell my students that, you know, there's like active listening and, and I think, I think listening is really, um, it's, it's, it's more of a, uh, it's not so much a skill, it's more of an attitude. It's a, it's a, it's being present, um, it takes energy. I often think that good listeners, once they have listened, is exhausting. It is exhausting. It is exhausting. I, I remember I was, I facilitated a group, uh, in, when I was living in Arlington, I facilitated a group, um, in the city of Alexandria, which is right next to Arlington called the parent, 
Parent Leadership Training Institute. It was for uh, training parents in the Arle- Alexandria Public Schools to be to be leaders, and um, and it, and it was very much about. Um, creating a space so the parents who were not used to thinking of themselves as leaders would would start to think of themselves as leaders. So it was a lot of it was about really paying attention and and modeling for the group, listening to people when they spoke. And I remember when I would leave a two or three hour session of those on a Friday night, I would be exhausted. Not having spoken that much, but from having been so focused on not just listening myself, but but kind of channeling listening for the whole the whole group it takes a lot of energy. So I want to step back a little bit then and learn a little bit more about you and how you came to be exploring and founding and directing and putting energy into this into this work. So what was your upbringing? What was my upbringing? Um, pretty, pretty ordinary white middle class. Uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, East Bay, outside of San Francisco. Um, I, you know, had a pretty uneventful, which um, I now realize was was a very, um, you know, was was kind of a blessing to have an uneventful childhood. Um, and um, I, I, I'd say a formative experience was when I was a junior in high school, I moved, my family moved to Houston, Texas. Um, this was, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date myself on the, on the radio here. Uh, this is 1972. And so I was moving from basically Berkeley, California to Houston, Texas, um, kind of at the height of the anti-war movement and um, the tail end of the free speech movement. And it was culture shock. My, my, I, was, I was miserable in many ways. Um, but I, looking back on that, I think it was one of the most beneficial experiences of my life because I learned that even people who lived in Texas could be lovely, friendly people. And I wouldn't agree with them on a lot of things, but people were very kind in a lot of ways. And, um, and I think I had a lot of conceptions, misconceptions, preconceptions about, um, people who were very different and who were very different, um, that, um, that I saw a different side. And, uh, you know, at the time it was like, I'll spend my two years in high school and get out of here. But I, I, looking back, I think it was a, I think it was a formative experience for me. Um, and then I, you know, I went to college, I went to law school. I, um, uh, I stayed home with my kids and got into community work. Uh, and that's kind of led me to, um, led me to see, you know, I think of, again, I think of law as sort of the, the kind of overt formal structures that we live within, but that there are all of these threads and webs that really make things work that are um, kind of overlooked a lot. And uh, we don't, we either take them for granted or we don't pay a lot of attention to them and we don't really know how to pay attention to them. And so both from a practical point of view, but also from an academic point of view, I got very interested. It's like, so why do lawyers not pay any attention to this? Because it's so incredibly important. Um, 
And so a lot of my academic work focuses on kind of how do we think about that and how do we frame that? Well, I wonder if we don't tend to think about laws as being in some way just a written record of what we as a society regard as morally appropriate and as reflecting the norms of who we are as a society. Well, I think they are. But but the question is, how does that happen? I mean, you know, we have we have a lot of information about, you know, the legislative process and, you know, voting and all that kind of stuff, all of which is very important. It's how we aggregate preferences. But um, but it's interesting to to think of, um, you know, how is it that changing social norms affect law and how is it that law affects changing social norms and that there's really a very messy, really widespread process. I mean, I, an example that I, I mean, I have a couple examples that I use with, with my students. One of them has to do with gay rights. Um, I uh, lived in San Francisco back um back in the Harvey Milk days. And that was a, a huge thing, but but San Francisco was really uh, way out there at that point. And so how did we get from Harvey Milk and San Francisco in the late 70s to Obergefell um, at the Supreme Court, you know, saying that um, same-sex marriage is a constitutional right, um, what, less than 30 years later? I mean, that's phenomenal. How, how did that happen? Um, th- that's the kind of thing, I mean, anybody who says that, you know, what happens in kind of real life social interactions doesn't have an effect on the law is just ignoring, I mean, that the really clear cut example. Um, how does that happen? And and how, if you want to change laws, do you just change the laws or do you kind of change people's perceptions? And how do you change people's perceptions? How do you change social norms? It's interesting to see how perhaps there is scope for this to be a two-way process, for the law to influence, of course, through enforcement or just the codifying of, of these principles to influence our behaviors in the real world, but also the behaviors in our real world to push the law to catch up. Mm-hmm. And the institutions that make these codifications inevitably catch up to what is actually happening in the communities around us. Well, and we can push back. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. You know love makes the world go round And love, baby, makes the seesaws go up and up and it makes trees grow tall and the most important thing of all it makes a boy and girl oh say they feel so fine now Be 
Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is Palmer Strand. That goes for Billy, Sherry, Bobby, and Marsha and Baby. You and How did you decide that you wanted to study law? Because you went off, and I believe you got a degree in engineering. I did. I got a degree in civil engineering as an oh, undergrad. Okay. Um, um, because I like to know how things work, and. Um, and civil engineering isn't like electrical <laughs> or mechanical. Things don't move. Things just stay still. Um, but I then I, I worked as a civil engineer and I worked in environmental work. I did a lot of uh, and uh, I was I was working as an environmental engineer when um, during the 1980s when there was a lot of new regulation about um, hazardous waste lots and lots of, of regulation and I was working with lawyers and um, and I was really interested kind of how at, how lawyers were engaged with the process of making things happen and um, and I I thought that's something I'd really like to do so I went to law school to be an environmental lawyer but I never became an environmental lawyer what was the film Erin Brockovich was that uh, yeah no not not me at all no. not me at all no Although I think it's interesting to me, though, that um, I'm wondering what it is that over time has, it seems, perpetually nudged you towards more, shall we say, altruistic or pro-social or broader scale human-centric endeavors. So, hmm, I guess I, I guess I think I've always been interested in and care about how people how people are with each other and how people are with each other um, in the world and um, you know being an environmental person is part of that um, being a lawyer is part of that and I think that I ultimately f- came to the conclusion that what we think of as law traditionally is it's like if you think about the tip of the iceberg that's the tip of the iceberg and that we there's this huge iceberg underneath that lawyers tend to ignore and because lawyers ignore it um, and because lawyers have such a huge role in defining how we think about how we are with each other that we ignore it a lot. And I think that's changing. I think a lot of the, you know, conflict resolution, conflict engagement, collaborative governance, deliberative democracy. I mean, there's oodles and oodles of movements, civic engagement to say how we are with each other. Law is a really important structure, but it's not the whole picture. And I think the work that you do, the work that I do is kind of, Part of that 
let's let's be more intentional about um, how we are with each other uh, in ways that don't just happen because we don't live in small towns anymore where we just are with each other because that's who we are. We live in big cities and we need to be intentional. Tell me a little bit about the 2040 initiative at Creighton University because that, according to your bio, is generally about facilitating exploration of and conversation about the ways in which changing demographics are affecting law and politics. And I see in that some of these themes that we've been talking about, about the intersection, the interaction between social norms, the law, Mm -hmm. uh, changing social structures, um, who we are. So... um the 2040 initiative uh, it takes its name from the year 2040, which is the year around which the Census Bureau says the nation will become, quote unquote, majority minority. So which is to say that non-Hispanic whites will be a minority in the country as a whole for the first time. Um, although I have a cartoon that, you know, points that there was a point where non-Hispanic whites were not the majority back in, you know, the 1600s. But anyway, um, and, and our thinking was this is a couple of colleagues of mine and I that that these this big demographic shift along with other demographic shifts you know the baby boomers aging urbanization that that but particularly this racial ethnic shift is changing who we are as a country this has been a non-hispanic white country majority country for a very long time and that this demographic shift would this is back in 2012 when we started kind of having these conversations that this would create fear and anxiety and this was before the 2016 election um and I think that we saw in the 2016 election that there is that kind of anxiety and fear. And our thinking was to kind of have, uh, provide a place for conversations about these changes and what they mean and what they mean for our collective identity and, um, and how instead of saying, I'm not going there, we can say, this is where we're going. How can we, um, how can we do this together? And so that's uh, that's what that's what the 2040 is initiative is about. It's about recognizing what's happening and being with it. Uh, I think you mentioned a sensation of anxiety, which is hard to put one's finger on as an individual when we're really thinking about that in some ways in broader social terms. But it seems that fear has been an underlying theme for the American sensibility for the last decade or more. And I, I wonder, is, is the work that you do that we should all be doing about reducing the fear and anxiety? Or is it instead about creating hope and optimism? Or are these two things really just part and parcel of the same, the same effort? Um, so I think that fear... I don't think you, as a, as a group, as a society, as a, any, you can't do anything without trust. Um, you know, and, and trust is, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a trust neophyte. I don't really know that much about trust, but, um, but trust is, is big and, and you, and it's really hard to trust if you're afraid. Um, and so a lot of it is about how can we trust, how can we trust particularly, but how can we um, it trust and bearing in mind that we don't want people 
to, to be trusting if other people aren't going to be trustworthy. So it's really, how do we build kind of trustworthiness? Um, and, and I, I, I do think that, um, that's probably related to hope. People in fear shut down and people who are hopeful and who have trust get creative, make good things to eat. Eating. It's a big part of it, gathering. Well, uh, you know, and, and uh, it's creativity, you know, that's, which, is, which is how things move forward. I mean, when, you, when you're afraid, when you shut down, when you're not taking any risks— then nothing creative happens. Then you you are always thinking of reasons why you can't do something. You know, you become a can't do, we can't do that, we can't do this. You shut down. And when you're willing to, I mean, a lot of the work, going back to the beginning of our conversation, a lot of the work in challenging racism and civity is about saying to people, you can take this risk. This is a little risk. You know, take the risk of maybe looking a little foolish. Take the risk of, you know, telling somebody your story that you might not ordinarily tell to someone. Take the risk of being a little bit more revealing about yourself than you would. And and it's amazing to me how when you say to people, yeah, this is a little risk. Think of all the risks you take in life. This is one that you can handle. Again, naming that risk makes people like, oh yeah, okay, I can do, I can do that. But But to say, well, it's not a risk, then... But it is a risk. It is a risk. But that's where that's where things happen. is a nice segue to ask you for people that are listening you're inviting them to take a risk what is something that anybody listening other than taking part in a civity based program what can they do to do that work of building authentic relationships that that cross divides and differences so I'll say two things Um, one is listen that's, I mean, I think it's just listening to people is so powerful. But, um, but here's another thing that, that I've come across in some of the research that I've done. Um, there's a lot of work that's been done on something called microaggressions, um, which are ways that people often who are in kind of more privileged or powerful positions kind of send messages to people who are in less privileged or powerful positions. You know, you don't belong, you're not important, whatever. And there's some psychologists out at Stanford um, who um, 
who are doing some amazing work on how very, very small interactions really matter, which is why microaggressions are important. And um, But they've developed something called a micro-inclusion, um, which, is, which is instead of, you know, the microaggression, which says you don't belong, is to say you do belong. Um, and, uh, you know, an example of this, um, so I'm a white woman, you know, if I was walking down a street, I see a black guy coming and I, or a teenager, and I cross the street because, you know, I don't want to deal with them. You know, that's a microaggression. That's like, I don't, I'm, I, I'm not comfortable with you. You don't belong here. A micro-inclusion is, is, you know, hey, how you doing? It's like, we belong here on this sidewalk together. Um, that's something that anybody can do. I love that. It reminds me of seeing the homeless in more urban streets and how many people tend to ignore them. Uh, same with, I would imagine, people uh, with some form of disability that, that use wheelchairs. And again, I think often what I hear is that they are looked past to the person who's pushing the wheelchair. Right. And, uh, and you know, there's another example of, of you know, ha- being in a wheelchair is a huge part of who that person is and what that person's life is about. And yet we're socialized to, to not talk about that. Um, and, and, you know, how can we not objectify that person, but, but acknowledge that, that that is who they, that is who they are. And your homeless example, it's exactly the same thing. It's like, you know. How do you treat somebody as a person? To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. Well, thank you for being here in person. Um, well, thank you. I've it's really been enjoyed fun. chatting. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>